we've got to get to serious things here and get to our notes. And we've made it through the first 10 weeks of school of ministry. Can you say amen? Now, did not those 10 weeks go quickly? I mean, they really, they go quickly. I mean, when you tell people there are 30 weeks, they kind of look at you with this glazed look. And I'm, and, and if you just, just kind of get the habit in, it just flies by. And so here we are at the end of uh, these first 10 weeks and all the information you need about what you should have done and need to catch up on or what you need to do and get prepared for. See Maria. I mean, Maria's got it down, so she'll give you all the information you need. And uh, I don't even know what to do anymore. So she's the one to talk to. But these last two lessons of this first trimester, I used in particular to get you prepared for this next trimester because we will be talking about delegated authority when we get into the second trimester. And uh, whenever we talk about delegated authority, uh, there are so many things that I know come up instantly and out of the chute with regards to what do you do, uh, you know, coming under authority, being in authority, what if you got a rotten authority, how do you deal with this? And, and I understand all the questions and they'll all be addressed and they'll all be answered. <clears throat> but I take these last two lessons and I, 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 I try to just throw some things out there in order to get us just to, to segue into that second trimester so you begin to understand that it doesn't matter where you are in in God's arrangement or order of things, that there are certain expectations that he has on all of our lives. Now, I'll just tell you right up front, and this is not in your notes, I'll get to the notes here in just a second, that, that I'm a man that has been ostensibly under authority for many years of my life. I find myself in a place of authority, yet I still am under authority in, in some arenas, and even in spiritual arenas, I have those who are over me in the Lord. You may be in a season where you're in authority or under authority. You may find yourself in both situations on occasion. And you need to understand that it, it doesn't matter whether you're under or whether you're in. God requires you to function according to divine pattern. Now, again, if you're under authority, it's always better if you have good authority. I've heard this for women from years who would say to me, well, you know, my husband, my husband really isn't taking leadership. He isn't doing what he's supposed to do. And, and they'll go on and on and on. And it's very difficult. And, and at times I would even hear from men who will talk about, well, you know, I, I want to give leadership to my family, but it's always a challenge in my household. And, and my wife, you know, is just challenging in this area. And so I, I have heard it on both sides of the equation. And I always remind them that it does not matter if you're a man because it says that you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church, or if you're the woman that says, submit yourself unto your husband as even unto the Lord. The bottom line is this, when you stand before God, you can't look at him and say, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. Therefore, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. You understand? I mean, it's always easier when everybody's given 100%, isn't it? If, he, if you're getting 100% from who's ever in authority, it's easier to give your 100%. But if they're only given half of that, or if they're not even giving a minuscule amount of that, it gets really hard if you're on the other side of the equation in order to do what you're supposed to do. But I have come to this understanding. It does not matter what the other side of the equation looks like. I'm, a, I'm required. I'm required no matter if I'm over, if I'm in, whatever, or, or under, excuse me, if I'm in authority or under authority, I'm required to give 100% of what I'm responsible to do. And when you can finally get a revelation of that, then you quit worrying about adjusting everyone else so you feel better about what you have to do. Are you following me? We're always waiting for someone to do something so I feel better about what I have to do or what God asked me to do. 
God asked me to do things and he just asked me and he doesn't adjust the universe for me. So he expects obedience. Now, having said that, see, that's like a, that's like a, a movie trailer for second trimester. You can see everybody going, I'm going to trip over myself to see that film. But having said that, I, I agree that it's always better if you can, if you can get a glimpse of what it should be like maybe on the other side of the fence or on the other side of the equation. And that's why we've done these last two lessons, because I just wanted to prepare you by saying uh, that, that there are responsibilities um, with regards to authority and how authority is to be administered. And this last lesson is what I entitled moral authority, moral authority. Now, there's a difference between having a position and having influence. Do you understand? Many make the mistake of thinking that once they get a title or uh, once they're given a position that somehow they're going to have a lot of influence. But that's not always true. I won't mention names, but there have been even certain presidents of the United States, even other governmental officials who have position and they have authority even with regard to the laws of the land. They have certain authority, but that doesn't mean they have influence necessarily. And especially it might not mean they have influence in my personal life. You need to translate that even into the life into, into life in the kingdom. You can have a position in ministry or you can have a position in the kingdom, but another may have influence. I have found that people will obey because of a position. In other words, if, if you're working at a firm or a company and your boss comes in, and of course we all know the boss writes the paycheck and, and that's who cuts it off. And if he asks you to do something, for most of us, if we, if we like to eat and pay our bills... Whether we like what he or she may have asked of us, we do it because of what? He's the boss. He's got a position. And so we obey. But, but it's interesting that even though we may obey because of a position, people usually only follow because of influence. It's interesting. Teenagers are the best example. Because teenagers will, if, if they've been parented correctly, so obviously if they've not been parented correctly, this might not be a, a great illustration, but... But most of the time, parents, because of their position as mom and dad, um, can force obedience into their young people or their children. And because you're parents, children ought to obey. But how many of you know that have had kids, they may obey, but it doesn't mean they like it. Doesn't mean they agree with it. You know, it, it may be right, but it, might, it, it doesn't mean, though, that that's what they really want to do. But if you've had teenagers especially you'll know that despite all the other things of their independence, there's always somebody in their group that's an influencer. Isn't that the way it always is? I mean, it doesn't matter. Our kids always seem to be able to find a group of kids, and there'll be one of them in there that'll be an influencer. And why is it always that that's the Antichrist? I don't know. I noticed that. I just noticed that. You, you want them to have good influences, though. Is that not true? You want them to have godly influences. But the truth is, they're a peer. They have no authority. They can't make them do anything, but there's something about them that's an influencer. And if they were to run off a cliff, if we, we've looked at them. Hey, if little Johnny runs off a cliff, does that mean you'd run off too? And they just, and, and sometimes they hadn't thought about that. And we all know they probably would have. And so whether it's pastor staff, elder, deacon, connect leader. I can give you all kinds of titles. People might obey an authority, but the key is to influence people with our lives. 
And I believe influence is far more critical to the success of a vision than even position. In fact, that's how come we've just kind of let titles fade into the sunset. I mean, you can give someone a title and most of the time they get a brain cramp. I don't know why that is. Uh, because truly, true leadership is influence. Influence, I wrote here, is a funny thing. It's hard to define, it's hard to describe, but you know it when you see it. Think for a moment about those who influence you. Who is it that, that their words influence you? Who is it that, that for some way or another, they can, they can influence your life? I'm not saying that's bad. Th that can be a good thing. You may never have thought, why or, or why not? It's interesting because when you begin to look at people and how people influence them, and I've looked at this and kind of analyzed this, and I've watched just different people. There are some people, when wealthy people are around them, you can tell that they're very influenced by that. Money influences them. Sometimes it's their rank in society or sometimes education. You know, there were years for me, and I'm, I'm, this is not a good thing, but, but really if, if you weren't a well-educated person, you really didn't have much to say to me. Now, that was wrong of me. In fact, biblically, it was wrong. It was something I had to repent of because, because God used an educated person to get my attention. And then after that, he used everybody without a lick of education in order to get through to me. All right. But they had influence. Influence. Influence is a tricky thing. One thing doesn't fit everyone. And oftentimes, there's little formal authority in our lives, yet we're drawn to them. Sometimes they demand our respect, but it's not because of a position. That's, there's something about people's lives that gives them an authority and influence, and it, 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 just, it just exudes from them. And the best way I can define that is with the phrase moral authority. Now, there's a guy in Scripture by the name of Nehemiah. And all of you have heard of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a guy who had no position, but he had influence. Now, I want you to really get a hold of that. He had zero position. You all remember what Nehemiah was, don't you? Nehemiah was the cupbearer. Now, I, I know I'm on DVD, and so I can't have you teach the lesson, uh, but you, you do know what the cupbearer's job was. The cupbearer drank drank, you know, the wine or whatever it was that was in the cup. And the reason he did it was because if by chance it got poisoned before it got to the king, it didn't take out the king, the cupbearer. How many of you know you probably could go through several cupbearers in an administration in this time period? Cupbearers were not positions you'd scramble for. You wouldn't apply for cupbearer. They didn't put it in the newspaper in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Times, that says, King wants cupbearer. And everybody would sign up and, and send them their Vita or their resume, and then he would choose all these. No, nobody wanted to be a cupbearer. Cupbearer attrition rates were high. So cupbearer was generally, I think we would all say amen to, pretty low on the position totem pole. Cupbearer. That's who Nehemiah was, a cupbearer. Now, it says in Nehemiah 2, and I'm not going to read all of this stuff, it came to pass in the month of Nisan. I don't know whether that was a car or January or what that was. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Interesting verse because, you know, when you get in front of the king, you got to be a happy camper. You can't come in and say, I'm a, you know, you're the cupbearer. Well, king, you know, I'm sorry. I don't have a smile. It was a bad day today. A king could care less about your day. 
And so he said, but he was sad and, and that had consequences. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of the heart. So I became dreadfully afraid because sad cupbearers were dead cupbearers. You know, you could see the king saying, I'll give you something to be sad about. And said to the king, this is what Nehemiah said, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Now that's pretty bold right there. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I just want you to capture what's going on here. The king says, well, what can I do for you? And, and, and he begins to intercede and he begins to pray. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Now, it, it wasn't that he just got out of being sad in front of the king. Now think about that. Just, just to be able to be sad and express a burden and the king go, oh, okay. I mean, that was, that was remarkable favor. But then he said, make sure, the king asked, what can I do for you? Well, he said, well, make sure then that I have these marching orders so that I can actually literally quit being your cupbearer so that I could go to the place of my father's and check out what's going on. And the king gave that to him. And then he took it a step further. And he said, well, how about let's also put into that, you give me a Lowe's card. Your account, which has absolutely no limit, and let me use it at Lowe's. And the king goes, well, here you go. How many of you know, Nehemiah had no position, but he had influence. Are you following me? See, I'm not going to tell the story again, but you've all heard the story, my custodian story. You can be sweeping the floors and mopping the cafeteria. You may not have position, but you can have all the influence. So you've got to begin to see this. You've got to get a revelation of this. See, these are the paradoxes of the kingdom. Right now, there are some of you in places of low position, and you're saying to yourself, I can't wait to get out of here and get me this position. And God may be saying, you don't want that position. I'm trying to give you some influence. And you live long enough, and you secure a few positions and find out that you have zero influence, but then you have no position and you get some influence and it can change your whole perspective. Now, it's interesting in verse 17 of that same chapter, Nehemiah also influences a people. He said to them, he's talking to the people now, he's there in Jerusalem. You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be approached. He's speaking to the people. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. So again, he's a cupbearer. Think about that. A cupbearer comes and speaks to a city and everybody goes, hey, it's the cupbearer. Now think about it. He, his, his lifespan isn't long. 
they didn't hear anything but his testimony of this, and yet there was influence there, obviously the favor of God as well. But the influence was there, and all of a sudden the whole city says, he's right, let's do this. He's not a general, he's not a mayor, he's not a commander, he's not a governor, uh, he's just a cupbearer. And yet a king has given him a Lowe's card that has no limit, and a people are willing to provide the work for no pay. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? You see, a good leader has a form of authority that does not rest merely on position or accomplishment. But I believe that's what God uses in the life of his people, is that he uses, and it's his spirit, it's his favor, he uses influence, influence, and I call that moral authority. Now, moral authority is an inner conviction and a willingness to bring your life into alignment with the convictions that you say you hold. I believe that the reason Nehemiah could stand before a king, certainly the hand of the Lord was upon him, but I believe that he had also earned a little credibility. I believe that that he had walked the walk and not just talked to talk. It's the relationship between what you say and what you do, what you claim to be and who you really are. I believe moral authority is the critical non-negotiable ingredient of sustained influence. In other words, how many of you know that the reason a lot of your coworkers and family members and friends, the reason they don't pay attention to maybe anything, and I'm not reflecting on you perhaps personally, but the reason they're difficult to talk to or to reach with the things of God is because the first thing that comes out of their mouth is they saw somebody who wasn't walking the walk despite the fact they were talking. And so they'll come out and they'll say, well, they're hypocrites. You know, they're all alike, these Christians. And, and, and they had no moral authority. There was no influence. You see, a person with moral authority is above reproach or at least making a good attempt at staying above reproach. If you look for discrepancies between what they say and what they do, you'll come up empty. There's a matching of conviction and action, belief and behavior. You need to realize that no amount of talent, skill, anointing, or education will make up for a lack of moral authority. We've seen this how many times on television sets? We've watched pastors, notable pastors fall. We've watched notable celebrities fall. We've watched notable politicians fall. I can tell you right now, you know the reason that when an athlete stumbles and all of a sudden his endorsements are pulled away from them? Because even advertising agencies have enough sense to know they've got no influence anymore. Golly, if the world understands it, how much more should we? Contradiction and inconsistency. We will not allow ourselves to be, to be influenced. Uh, we won't allow ourselves to be influenced by those who have it. In other words, they, they, they're living an inconsistent life. Moral authority, I wrote here, is a fragile thing. Sometimes it takes years, sometimes a lifetime to earn. You've heard me tell the story before. I was saved when I was 18 years old. It was seven years before I could lead my sister to the Lord. Seven years. Why did it take so long? Because they'd all grown up with me for 18. They'd all watched me intricately. And that's why family's hard to reach sometimes. It took, it took that many years to reach my sister. 
It's taken years to turn my parents from from a position of almost, oh, it's a phase he's going through. That's just something that he'll get over. You know, it was like I was 18. And you know how it is when you're 18-year-old and comes and says something bizarre to you. You know, a lot of times as parents, we go, it's a phase they're going through. Yeah, 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 it's the Jesus phase. Yeah, he'll get over it. And, And I'm sure it's difficult because for them, they changed my diapers. You know, they blew my nose. They fed me that Gerber gunk. I mean, I mean, they did. They tended to me when I was sick, and they watched my mistakes and my stumblings and all the things that I did. It it took years to develop credibility. It has taken years, so many years that it has just been recently where one of my parents has said to another family member, "You need to contact Kevin because he probably has more to say than I do in this." Now, it's taken, hear me now, I've, I've walked with God for 32 plus years. That's how long it took to earn that statement. 32 years. Now, hear me, that type of authority can take a lifetime to earn, but it can be lost in one incredibly dumb moment. What took you decades to build can go with one word with one decision, with one action. And once it's lost, I believe it's recoverable, but it can be tough. You see, moral authority positions you to influence people at the deepest levels of their life. And when you have moral authority, you can touch people's hearts and their conscience and their life's decisions. I mean, that is heavy stuff. I started thinking about this the other day, and I'm not going to put anyone on the spot, but I'm just telling you, people will come to me and they'll call me on the phone and they'll ask me what to do with sums of money. And I'm going, I don't know if I really want to talk about this. Because if what because one word could send them a wrong direction. But to realize that the influence that exists there, that people would entrust you with that kind of decision. People look at each other and say, what am I going to do with my, my marriage? What am I going to do with my kids? What am I going to do with this job offer? What am I going to do? I'm, they're saying I need to move or this and that. And it's thrown in front of you. And all of a sudden you get to influence people at their deepest levels. Let me tell you something. If you have that kind of authority, you ought not get too thrilled with it. You can mess some people up. I mean, I'm glad for that kind of influence. Don't misunderstand me. I think influence can be a powerful, righteous thing. But at the same time, you need to realize that when you get that kind of influence, you best handle that in a very, very careful way. You see, you touch people's lives and you got to protect it at all costs. All the ability in the world will not take the place of moral authority. Now, you need to understand moral authority is not just a method of getting things done or even a leadership ploy. You see, great leadership is rooted in something other than a desire to be a great leader. Jesus said this himself. He said, any of you aspiring to be great, what should you do? What did he say? Be a servant, didn't he not? If you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to be at the top, you got to go to the bottom. If you want to be at the front of the line, go to the end of the line. If you want to be invited to the front table, be sure you sit at the back table. Because if you go and park it at the front table, you're going to be sent to the back table. You under, okay, all of those kingdom paradoxes. So you've got to understand, if you, want, if you want greatness, and there's nothing wrong with greatness. In fact, Paul would write to Timothy with regards to leadership, and he says, if any of you aspire to be an overseer, he goes, you've aspired to a good thing. 
Paul's not saying it's, it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to aspire to, to give leadership. It's not a bad thing to aspire to influence people's lives. God wants us to influence people's lives. I told you before, we're called to be ambassadors. We're called to walk in authority. He wants us to be salt. He wants us to be light. But, but it's rooted in something other than a desire to be great or visible or, or whatever it is you see that you want. You see, moral authority is a natural expression of your devotion to God. That's why leaders who are driven only by the desire to be a great leader rarely maintain this moral authority. That's our problem in civil society. we got people clamoring for elective office, but once they get there, they lose it. Well, they don't often lose it, but they lose their influence because they've blown it with, with dumb character decisions. It's a commitment to something outside the realm of your leadership. It's a commitment to do right things, regardless of what everyone else says or what everyone else does. I just read, before I came in here, a story on the internet. It was on the AOL news page, and it was interesting. There was a Christian school in Florida. I'll just tell you the story. A Christian school in Florida where they had a, a, a young, a single woman teacher who got pregnant out of wedlock. They fired her because that was under the morals clause of the contract, fornication. So she was released from her job as a Christian teacher at a Christian school. She got her an attorney, and now she's suing the school. See, this is the era we live in. She's saying, you can't take my position away from me. I, you just can't do it. You, I'm not going to let you do that. But, but she has no conception of the influence that she has forfeited through the actions of, and the decisions that she decided to enter into. You see, you, you, it, it's called consistency. It's what you are in public or what you are in a classroom or what you are behind the pulpit or what you are a connect group or what you are wherever it is that you've been given some sort of oversight or leadership to. Who you are there is who you are at home. If you come to our house, every, we, will, we switch. When the commercials are wrong, they're gone. When the movie's not right, it's over. I, I, that's how it is. It's not just something I preach so you all can do it and I go out and fake you out. That's how it works at our house. Right, honey? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. You'll hear the voice of the Holy Ghost. It sounds a lot like Tracy. Who on occasion, kids, what are you watching up there? Is it appropriate to be watching? Do I need to come up there? And on occasion, she will. And praise God, I think that uh, they make quality decisions. So, But moral authority means you're not playing to the crowd. George Bush once said, I don't lead by polls. And that truly is. Sometimes right things aren't popular. As a leader, you must always be willing to do the right thing, even if it jeopardizes what you think to be the vision or your personal vision. I think one of Trace, you, you you made that little card. I think that sits on our refrigerator that says, "What you what is it? What you consider to be an abortion of God's plan? What may seem to be an abortion of God's plan in your life may actually be a fulfillment of His promise or purpose or destiny." And that really is true. If you if you stay obedient and free from offense, thank you. If you stay obedient and free from offense, I don't read the refrigerator. I'm inside that thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm reading all sorts of things inside, but I, no, no, no. 
But that really is true. And there, and there is a, pro, a vision process that there, God gives you a vision and he births it and then he asks you to die to it. And the reason he asks you to die to some things is because he wants to know if he's still number one or just what he does for you is number one. See, every vision comes to a crossroad, I believe. Even Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' destiny was to win the world? Is that not his vision? God's heart was he wants to redeem this whole world. And he came in order to implement the plan of God in the earth. And early in the ministry, the enemy, while he was in the wilderness, took him to the pinnacle of, of, of the temple. And he said, look out in everything that you see. It's all mine. And to an extent, the enemy was accurate because he is the ruler of this age, it says. And, and he said, I will give all of this to you if you but worship me. Jesus himself had the opportunity to compromise and to shortcut what ultimately would be God's destiny because God was indeed going to redeem the whole thing, according to Colossians 1. It says that he redeemed. Everything is touched by the blood. He could have shortcut this, but there are moments that you do the right thing even if it seems like you're losing a God thing. I've told this so many times, you know, when we were growing up, we grew up uh, going uh, to the Church of the Nazarene, and we met at a Nazarene college, and it was a beautiful colonial-style college, brick, just a neat place. And in Kansas, in the wintertime, it would snow, and when they turned the lights on at the college, if you could imagine, there was this great big circular driveway in front of the whole school and all these colonial brick buildings, and it sat up on a hill, and there was this beautiful snow. And literally, it, it, was, it was picture perfect. Anheuser-Busch saw it, and they wanted to drive up their team of Clydesdale horses and obviously the, the Budwagon, and they wanted to take a shot and produce a Christmas card out of that. And they were willing to give the college a million dollars for one photograph. 1980, yeah, one million. Imagine a million dollars in 1980. And I can tell you just because I was a part of some of the inner workings and knew what kind of money they had to raise to keep the place going, a million dollars, that's a lot of money, isn't it? I mean, I can think of a few scriptures right now I could use. Wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. Hallelujah, I'll take the million and snap away. I know some people would say, I'll sit on the bud wagon. Just, I'll just. I know how people think. I mean, I just for a million dollars, take the million. I'll go get forgiveness later. Hallelujah. They turned it down because they determined that their influence would be compromised by having that happen. Let me ask you, I mean, a million dollars, what would you compromise for a million? I hope you wouldn't compromise anything for a million. If you face the choice, you have to even abandon the vision before you abandon your moral authority. You see, vision is important, but maintaining your influence takes priority. Why? It's because the end does not justify the means. Right is right and wrong is wrong. So would God lead you to a place that you would consider to be his will for your life even, that forces you to do what he clearly says he forbids for you to do? The answer, I would hope, is no. I want to tell the story. I don't have time to read it. I think I put it in your notes here, the, the Peggy Noonan story. Peggy Noonan was a writer for, I believe she was a writer for Ronald Reagan, and she's been sort of one of those talking heads and analysts and op-ed writers in newspapers. But she was writing 
on one occasion about the National Prayer Breakfast many, many years ago under the Clinton administration. I'm going to tell you the story real short. They had invited Mother Teresa, as you recall, from Calcutta, India, and she works with orphans and, and lepers and outcasts, and she brings them into her Sisters of Mercy homes, and, and they care for these people that no one, will else, no one else will care for there in, in Calcutta. And they invited her to come speak and, and here at this national prayer breakfast. And of course, everybody's there. Republicans are there. Democrats are there. Conservatives and liberals and atheists and agnostics and seekers and all the kinds of people you would expect to want to get in on the prayer breakfast because generally they use these events to network and to, to catch up with each other. And everyone was there. And the time came for Mother Teresa to come out and she began to share with everyone in her soft voice, and she was just a small lady. And then in just a few moments, she began to share on the topic of abortion. And I, and I like how Peggy Noonan wrote it. She said, Mother Teresa did not know the ways of Washington. You just didn't bring up certain topics at certain events. She didn't know this was sort of like what you didn't do, but she didn't care. She started talking about how abortion was death and, and that Jesus manifests himself in the children and that to kill the children is literally to alienate the Lord. And, and, and she, she stopped for just a moment and she said there was a moment or two when you'd hear just a clap and another clap until finally everybody was clapping in the room except the president at that time and the vice president who happened to be the Clintons and the Gores. They weren't clapping at that particular moment, despite the whole room clapping. And they got done with the ovation and sat down. And she said, you would have thought somebody would have left it at that. You'd won the moment. But she decided she would go on. She said, it's the blight of America. Give me the kids. Give me the, the, the ostracized ones. Give them to me. And when it was all said and done, she walked out. And, and Peggy Noonan just writes really, neat here at the end of the writing, and I want to read it just like she put it here. She says this, perhaps she didn't know or care that her words were, as they say, not healing, but divisive, not only Protestant from Catholic, but Catholic from Catholic. It was so unhappily unadorned, explicit, impolitique, and it was wonderful, like a big fresh drink of water, bracing in its directness and uncompromising tone. And Mother Teresa seemed neither to notice nor care. She finished her speech to a standing ovation and left as she had entered silently through a parted curtain in a flash of blue and white. She could do this, of course, because she had a natural and unknown authority. You see, what are you going to do to Mother Teresa? See, this is the key. What are you going to do? Send her to India? I tell you what, I tell you what we're, going to, we're going to send you to India and we're going to make you work with the outcasts. Oh, I forgot. You're already doing that. See, that's, do you understand? That's what makes a prophet a prophet. Because what do you do with them? Well, think about John the Baptist. What are you going to do with them? Send him to the desert? Strip him from all his designer clothes and make him wear rags? Forbid him from haircuts? Force him to eat locusts and honey? Do you understand? They had an authority. What are you going to do with them? There's nothing you can do with them. I mean, there is such a liberty in that. That's why I've often said to Tracy, I said, there have been hurtful, harmful, trying, challenging, hard times in our past. <laughs> but you know, I've reached the place where we've lost one church. What are you going to do? Yeah, send me to the mall. 
What do you do? What do you do with them? See, that's, but that's when you have influence. So let's just talk about this. I got a rush. There's, there's something, I can't go down through it all. It's, it's maintaining your moral authority. Number one, you got to keep your character right. Come on, abide by his word. Surrender to his standards. You gotta, that's moral authority is when you walk in character. Secondly, moral authority is also birthed out of sacrifice. I'll just tell you, I, 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 when I hear somebody, another pastor has walked some of the path that I have walked, and maybe he's a little bit farther down the road or, or, or the couple there a little farther down the road, I tell you, they got my attention. Because I want to hear from people that have sacrificed and have laid it on the line. And, uh, you know, people may disagree with your position, but they can't disagree with the conviction that's lived out. You may not like some of my convictions, but I'll tell you, well, what do you do with a guy that walks it out? You can say, I don't know that I agree with him, but at least he's consistent. Time is a part of influence as well. You can't achieve it overnight. You can't manufacture it at will. It develops because your character has been put to the test and you have passed. Experience is a necessary component as well, and that takes time. Because Mother Teresa's moment did not come from one incident, but she spent a lifetime in a place few of us would go that gave her the moment in front of everyone that was supposedly a mover and a shaker. So we have to handle it with care. I want to end with this, and I'm doing good with my time. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, if you have your Bibles, you might want to just crease it or mark it. But in Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, there's a great little story here that doesn't get preached from much anymore, but most of you know the story. It's the story of Zacchaeus. Some of you grew up in Sunday school. How many of you here, when you were a little kid, you went to Sunday school? Just when you were little, you went to Sunday school. Remember the song, Zacchaeus was... (laughs) Okay, okay, that's good. That's good. You know it. (laughs) So you know the story of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. He ripped people off. But he, but he was drawn to Jesus. And you know the, the story. He climbed up into the sycamore tree. He was trying to find Jesus. And when Jesus was walking by, he sees Zacchaeus up in the tree. And he says to him, come on down out of the tree. I want to go to your house. And so they all went to Zacchaeus' house. Now you can imagine if we just stopped there thinking to yourself, how could Jesus go to this guy's house? But he does go to the house, and uh, he is touched deeply. Zacchaeus is touched deeply uh, with regards to who the Lord is. And something begins to happen to Zacchaeus at that particular moment. Now listen, listen to me very carefully. This is going to be very important, because this is going to run counter grain to a lot of what you see, and maybe some of what you hear. All of us are human. All of us have had failures of one level or another. Maybe all of our failures aren't equal, but all of us can say that we are flawed human beings. The Bible says that. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And gaining forgiveness from people, and even from the Lord, is one thing. In fact, it's automatic. If you come with a genuine heart and ask forgiveness, and and you have a spirit of repentance and godly sorrow on you, God's not going to cast you out. He'll receive you. But listen to me, gaining forgiveness is one thing, but regaining your influence is a whole nother matter. Many think forgiveness equals automatic credibility. That's not so. I've seen that happen even in lives of married couples when, when, when one of uh, the spouses perhaps has 
has uh, had a failure, and, and to the credit of the other one, they forgive, and they're going to work on it, and, and all that's great. And, and, and there should be forgiveness, and we aspire to those things. But listen, listen, just because there's forgiveness doesn't automatically bring credibility back to the equation. Now hear me. Zacchaeus asked for forgiveness. He did. For overtaxing. He'd abused his authority. Now here's the deal. You're, you're a part of the town there, and, and you see Zacchaeus, and, and he stands out and he begins to testify, and he says that he's been forgiven. The Lord has come to my house, and he's forgiven me. Now, now the question is, could you forgive him? And the answer, I would hope, would be what many of the townspeople would say as well. Okay, we can forgive you. But the question is, would you trust him? And I suspect if, if we really got honest, you might have to say, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not because you ripped me off. I remember that time I knew what my tax bill was supposed to be and you ripped me off and you, you asked twice as much from me and I knew what was wrong, but there was nothing I could do about it. And I'm really kind of irritated about it still. Now, I believe the Lord forgave you, but I'm not sure I want you, you know, being my tax consultant anymore. And he says, well, I'm really sorry about that. And you can say, okay, I understand you're sorry about it, but, I, but I'm not sure, I'm just not sure I'm willing to enter into this thing again. Now, now, that would be a normal, natural thing, and I think it would probably be an appropriate thing. But imagine what the people of the community thought when he announced, listen, he not only was forgiven, but then he announced he was going to give half of his possessions to the poor. Whoa. And then it says, in fact, as I understand, the law said he only really had to restore a tenth, but, but he said he was going to give a half. Nobody did that. But it says that he would also pay back everyone he ever overtaxed. Don't you know there'd be a lineup at his house? He said he would do that. And it said that everyone he cheated fourfold, he said, he would give back the amount that was illegally seized. In other words, that not only would he pay back what he owed you, but he'd give you the interest on it as well. 25% interest on everything that he had illegally seized from you. Now, Knowing that, if Zacchaeus stood up and he gave his testimony, how many of you know there might be some credibility there? I mean, if you saw that, you'd say to yourself, whoa, I think something's happened to this guy. Now, listen to me. Listen to me, folks, and I'm going to close with this. Years to build influence. One decision can crash you. It's possible to get your influence back but it will cost you. See, we don't, we don't preach this anymore. Restitution, do we? You, I mean, when was the last time you heard a restitution message? When was the last time God dealt with you so much about something that you did maybe years ago that you say to yourself, oh God, help me have a way to restitute that situation. You just don't hear that. You do not hear that in church anymore. But you know why I believe that passage is there in the Bible? It's, it's to say to us, you may have lost your influence, but there's a way. There is a way to get it back, but it's not without cost. See, the first time you paid for your moral authority through time, through consistency, you know, through conviction and character and standards and experience, you paid for it that way. And, and, and if you blew it, you just don't get all that back. For Zacchaeus, it cost him. It, it took a demonstration of unusual proportion in order to regain that influence. So I guess this is what I'm saying to you in your Christian walk. I want to say this to you in, in your potential leadership possibilities, in your influence, 
maybe at work or other places, listen to me very carefully. Don't blow your influence. I think about that all the time. 32 years to hear my dad say, you need to go talk to Kevin. I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that. I don't know what kind of influence you have, but, but whatever it is, and if you're getting it back or if you're still establishing it, whatever the case may be, I'm just encouraging you, handle it like it's gold. Handle it like it's the, the most important thing. It, and it really is. It, it is the most important thing God can give you. I believe favor comes out of your influence. Amen. Hey, stand with me.